This podcast is supported by .tech Domains, a domain extension designed with the tech community in mind. .tech Domains allow you to create strong, tech-focused positioning for your brand. The .tech extension offers a ton of availability, so you don't have to compromise on your domain name. And it's intuitive and descriptive, which will help you create a great first impression and stand out in the crowd. Big brands are already using the .tech extension, including Viacom, CES, and Intel. The .tech domain has also been great for startups. In fact, startups using the .tech extension have already raised $500 million in funding. Whether you are looking for a domain for your tech startup, tech blog, or personal portfolio, a .tech domain is the way to go. Get your .tech domain today at www.get.tech. And be sure to use coupon code BESTTECHIE to save 96% on all one-year and five-year registrations. Pricing for one-year registrations start at just $1.99. Again, that's www.get.tech and coupon code BESTTECHIE. Hey guys, Jeff here from BESTTECHIE.com and this is Techie Bytes episode 31. Today I'm speaking with Sandy Lin, co-founder and CEO at Skilljar. We discuss learning how to sell, the keys to retaining customers, and the secrets behind making great hires. Enjoy. This podcast is supported by Wix.com. With Wix, you can create your own professional website. Choose a template you love or start from scratch, drag and drop to customize anything, and use advanced design features like video backgrounds and image galleries. You can even add professional business solutions like an online store, booking system, or blog. I've personally tested and reviewed Wix on Best Techie and can say without a doubt that Wix is extremely easy to use and a great choice for both novice and advanced users. So go ahead, try it yourself. Go to Wix.com and create your own website today. That's Wix, W-I-X.com. I'm here with Sandy Lin, co-founder and CEO at a company called Skilljar. So Sandy's here on the podcast today, and we're going to be talking about a lot of really interesting things, especially from coming from a position at a company like Amazon, where, which is where she worked, and then starting her own, uh, doing product management, and then starting her own company, uh, and a bunch of other really interesting things related to hiring and things like that. So without further ado, Sandy, how how are you doing? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's really um, a privilege to be chatting with you today. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on too. Uh, one of the things that I, I would like to kind of go over just real quick before we get into this whole conversation is tell tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, uh, about Skilljar a little bit, and uh, to kind of kick us off. Sure. Um, as you said, I'm the co-founder CEO of Skilljar. Um, what we build, our product, is a customer training and certification platform. Um, it helps companies largely B2B companies like Cisco, Tableau, Smartsheet. Um, we help them deliver product education to their end users. So historically, to take training classes, um, in the corporate world, you're going to classrooms or maybe doing WebEx. And um, these days, a lot of training is moving online. So we, we provide a software platform that allows those companies to actually create and deliver those courses online. A couple other quick facts just to, to get you and, and the audience grounded. We are um, a venture-backed tech startup based in Seattle, Washington. Um, 
have doubled this year from about 30 to we're now about 75 employees and still growing strong. And we recently raised our Series A round from um, two really awesome um, venture firms down in the Bay Area, Mayfield Fund and Shasta Ventures. Nice. I'm familiar. I'm familiar with Shasta. I, I don't. I feel like I've heard Mayfield in passing, but uh, Shasta is also obviously is a very is a very uh, well known venture fund as well. Um, I'm curious because you said you just went from 30 people at your company to 75 and growing. How 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 has that been from a uh, from a founders you know and and CEO perspective? Uh, kind of seeing you know essentially you know you you're doubling and stuff in size more than doubling really. It is crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I I don't have children myself, but I sometimes think about the parallels between growing a company and perhaps raising children. And you know, every six months I look around, I'm like, is this is this the same company? Uh, it's <laughs> a lot of know, new faces for sure. A lot of new faces. Um, you know, we change offices pretty much every year, so new physical spaces. Um, new systems, and, and it's what makes it really, really fun, but it also makes it really, really hard, too. Mm-hmm. So jumping back a little bit, before SkillJar, uh, you worked at Amazon, a company that most people, <laughs> not everybody <laughs> knows, um, yeah. for a while doing uh, product management, and and there you, you, know, you did a lot of really interesting things. You were part of an elite group at Amazon called the Bar Raisers, but we'll get to that in just a few. But I want to know how how did working at a company like Amazon prepare you or not prepare you for the role that you've taken on here at Skilljar as a co-founder and CEO? Gosh, that's such a great question. Um, let me start with the things that I really appreciated from my time at Amazon. And and just as background for for you, my um, I was originally an engineer by I guess education and training. And you know, worked in technical um, jobs for you know a while after college. Then decided to get my MBA at Stanford to round out my technical skill set. And then I joined Amazon in 2009 as a product manager, which there is very much a general management function while working, of course, very closely with designers and engineers and. Um, and other stakeholders to you know build the best software experience po- experiences possible. So, um, so my experience in tech is actually um, was a little bit later in life than than some. And Amazon is really my formative um, experience in terms of technology. So, um, so coming back to your question of how it did and didn't prepare me. So, a few of the really wonderful things I learned at Amazon. Um, first is you know focus on the customer and having the customer be front and center to everything you do. So um, Amazon is is very much customer oriented and at a startup, you know, each customer, especially when you're an enterprise um, selling like myself, each customer is like gold. <laughs> and right. no, absolutely. Really, yeah. <laughs> and really um, thinking about not just how to, you know, satisfy them from a product perspective, but you know, how to really enhance their outcomes and goals and objectives of whatever they're trying to use with your product and all the different experiences you might provide for them and you know jumping on any sort of issues as fast as possible that's that's a very as i now realize unique mindset that amazon really um 
lived and breathed every every moment. Um, another thing I really learned is I call it ruthless prioritization. So um, being in a startup and working with a lot of people that have mostly worked at startups, we tend to think of large companies like Amazon as super generously resourced and in, in many ways that is completely true. But in so many other ways, especially as a product manager, um, regardless of whether you're at a startup or at a large company, there's still like a thousand things that you want to be doing that you can't. And I mean, the differences are, you know, at a startup, even just taking engineering resources, you have a huge feature backlog that you have to ruthlessly prioritize to focus on what is most impactful, um, and then things crop up and you know, resources go elsewhere. And it's the same thing in Amazon. It's, um, there's still a million things you're trying to do, and then other teams want to borrow your resources or they need something from you. And, and just that experience of ruthless prioritization, um, and maybe that's more as a product manager um, than being at Amazon, was super helpful because in startups, every day is about how do you make the most impact with the fewest resources possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I can totally relate to that. Having having built an analytics company that was B2B focused, uh, we were a B2B uh, business and, and and tackling those those prioritization issues day in and day out, it literally was, you know, the, one of the number one things on my on my list every day that I was focusing on, like, all right, so yeah. what do we have to focus on today? And and big, and then what do we have to focus on today that also ensures that we're still kind of adhering to the vision and and the big picture, um, yeah. you know, moving forward? Because yeah. there are there's a lot of little fires that pop up, uh, as yes. I'm sure you're aware, and and you have to be able to kind of understand that not always can you get to every single fire. You have to be able to kind of strategically pick what fire is worth putting out and which one <laughs> okay to I let wish- burn for a little bit. Yes. A which bit. ones are, are burning out in a field where nobody's getting hurt and which ones are burning in an apartment building downtown. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there's like, like it's crazy because I also learned, and it's going to sound a little weird, but I also learned how a big company operates. And it wasn't relevant, I would say, until now when we're, you know, 70 plus people. Um, but just having some insight into how a large company does performance reviews and how they launch new features in the product and exposure to working with accounting and legal and contracts. Um, these are things which were less relevant when we were very small, but having seen some of that at a large company has been incredibly useful um, now. And the really uh, thing, one of the things that Amazon is very much known for is written communication. So the infamous six pagers or one pagers uh, and, and meetings that are run with everybody sitting in silence for the first 20 mini- minutes reading a document. My ability to write documents and very clearly communicate in a high degree of detail, backed with data, crisply um, summarized in a one to six page document with appendices, that skill um, what was really off the charts from my time there. Yeah, it, it's certainly something that won't leave you, and that is super helpful. I, I thought, you know, there are there are a lot of times, especially when when you're running a startup or any business, really, it could be big or small. Um, communication's key. It's it's one of the key, you know, factors that you know a leader has to be really good at communicating, really. Mm. Um, and and you know, without being able to communicate, you know, what you're looking for from your your team, your employees, your board, you know, uh, it doesn't benefit you at any. That's for sure. So, 
Absolutely. And the flip side of that, though, of what I didn't learn, um, mm. I didn't learn how to do PowerPoint and I didn't learn how to get up in a room and deliver a presentation. I don't think I did that a single time in my four years there. And because of my engineering background, I didn't get it before that either. And so I'm, I'm really finding recently that that's a gap in my skill set. And I've been working on it. I mean, obviously, I've raised money and right, done sales presentations. <laughs> um, but it's something that I still feel behind on relative to, say, other tech CEOs. And, um, you know, fortunately now we have, you know, designers and things to help with PowerPoint. But it definitely felt like a gap and it still is something I'm working on. And, and then also, strangely, Amazon did not teach me sales and marketing, which unfortunately for a SaaS startup are very critical to success. And so I really had to self-teach you know, how to, the whole sales and marketing process, you know, Amazon is mostly a retail and developer driven organization. And so I didn't, and the teams I worked in, I just didn't get exposure to those parts of the business, um, mm -hmm. as well as just general startup fit of that daily hustle of, I say, you know, brick by brick, you know, survival and, you know, the, the hand to hand knife fight, especially in the early days of startups that I didn't really, um, experience that at Amazon. Right. Well, that's actually, actually it's actually a really good transition for us, I think, right here, because you, the sales and marketing aspect, and I, I I guess early on, and even even today, I'm not sure how involved you are with the sales process or anything right now, but early on, I'd imagine, as with any founder and CEO, you were heavily involved in the sales process and pitching potential customers. Um, what what was your strategy for doing that? And, and, and I guess, how did you kind of teach yourself along the way, you know, the, the best way to bring on customers? Uh, gosh, I think <laughs> I'm still I'm still learning. Um, and it's something we're actually really working on as an organization right now. So I am very involved with sales. It was a new muscle I had to develop over the last five years. And so um, I guess there's two ways, three ways I really learned. One is customers, internet, and friends. So... Um, we have always been blessed with a very healthy word of mouth, organic um, set of you know customers that find us and submit demo requests. And, and Skilljar was a little bit born out of pivots. So early on, I really was both very insecure about my sales ability as well as, um, you know, <laughs> frankly, afraid of getting on the phone to some extent. But I had to because I was the only non-technical person on the team. And so I think my natural curiosity and um, actually my product management experience and tr really trying to understand business problems was um, very helpful in that I was just asked a lot of questions. And again, very blessed to have potential customers showing up at our front door, essentially, and just asking questions that really understand the context, the business problems they're trying to solve. And then you know, matching that with what we did or did not have in the product at that time and kind of painting a picture of how we might work together. And, um, you know, there's a lot of internet reading about how to do sales, but of course that's, um, it's sort of like learning engineering in the classroom versus actually building an application, but you know, it's helpful mm -hmm. to understand the framework. And, and I, and then I really relied on friends. I remember meeting with just any friend in sales. It doesn't matter if they were selling, you know, uh, telecom services door to door or, you know, working in an office setting. And it sounds really basic, but 
you know, five years ago, I didn't know what discovery was or how to put together um, a presentation or how to drive next steps. And I remember um, a friend of mine was saying, you know, oh, sometimes I just put a calendar on the other person's, um, I just send the other person a calendar invite and they may or may not accept. And so all those little tactics like that I picked up from my friends. And now, now that we have a sales team of, gosh, I don't know, about 20 all in, it's, we're really trying to standardize some of these. So yeah, that can be a huge uh, process. <laughs> yeah, it is a huge process. And we're just at the beginning. And so um, we actually just rolled out uh, a sales deck for the first time, which sounds crazy when we're, you know, uh, mid seven digits in revenue. But it's the first time we've had a sales deck. And um, and really try to identify our ideal customer profile and train the team on that. Um, a very clear right, streamline the process. Yes, streamline, standardize, um, and I think it's important to do that because up till now I've you know gotten away with just asking really good questions and being curious and lining that up with the product. But as a startup, you know we do think about the world a little bit differently, and we want to partner with companies where we share that vision about what the world could look like. And if you're a new salesperson coming in, you know, how do you get the right words and um, stories and, and to tell to those customers if you're, you know, brand new to the organization. So I'm trying, we're, we're in the very beginning of figuring it out too and trying to strike that balance between um, the ability to scale and help our sales team members and our customers, but also keeping some of that childlike curiosity and understanding um, what our customers are trying to solve and how do we do that? No, exactly. I think, you know, I think one of the things that you're, that you've probably already seen and will continue seeing as you kind of build it up that sales team is that there are different types of salespeople out there. You know, as the founder, you know, you're very familiar with the product, but as you just mentioned, when you bring on someone new, you're 70 plus people, you know, they, they may have heard of the product, obviously, but, you know, and having interviewed at, at Skilljar, but you know, they're not, they're not, they weren't in the ins and outs of how everything was kind of put together till, you know, till now. And, and having a process where they can be onboarded and, you know, find success, um, with a, with a process, you know, uh, that, that basically has been with a sales deck and, and, and understanding the verbiage to use and, and, and having kind of the right kind of, uh, approach to reaching out to customers with the right profile and things like that is certainly helpful and will help not only the company, but will help that individual salesperson succeed uh, at the at your company as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And I also think that's interesting that your product management background also really kind of seems like it played a really unique role in your ability to learn how to sell, like you were saying, because, you, because you're familiar with, you know, talking to all the different... Um, you know, groups of, uh, of people, right? The, the, the engineers, the designers, mm-hmm. the customers, getting the feedback and kind of like, all right, this is a, you know, if we can build something like this or kind of, you know, do this type of feature or, you know, this is what our customers are really looking for. And I think that would really kind of help sell the product. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. So that, I mean, yeah. I just think that's a very interesting kind of marriage of, of two kind of skill sets right there. Yeah. And I've definitely gone on a um, sort of emotional journey with it because <laughs> as the sole salesperson for a long time, you know, I had a lot of insecurity about, I mean, I picked up all these little nuggets, but you know, f- for years, like I'd ever, I'd never actually sat on the opposite side of a sales presentation or, you know, had a close 
um, understanding of what that looks like. So I felt like I was just flailing around. And then when I hired, you know, my first few salespeople, I thought, hey, teaching them the product, they'll know how to, you know, quote unquote, sell. And it turns Mm -hmm. out, you know, it's not that case. It is that magical um, intersection between, you know, really trying to understand the customer and what their objectives are, and then also being able to match to the solution and storytelling around it. And I thought, hey, this is like exactly what product management was. And just like one specific example is sometimes um, potential customers come to us with a lot of questions about reporting and the ways you might be able to generate a report and the slicing and dicing and filters and columns. And in the beginning, actually, we had very, very limited reporting, almost none. And I knew that from a product perspective. So, you know, when when this customer was asking lots of questions, I said, hey, you know, what do you use these reports for? Like, mm-hmm. what are the what are the really like key? Like, how does this actually help? Like, knowing, of course, that we didn't have it, how does this play <laughs> into your day to day life? And they said, well. What we do with these reports is I go and I massage all the data and then every week I like give them to my Salesforce admin so they can upload in the Salesforce so then we can create all of these. Um, so then we can understand how customer training relates to customer health and satisfaction and ultimately account renewal and churn. And I was like, huh, so it sounds like you know all these questions about reporting are really a way to get all this data in Salesforce and, you know, kind of go along this, this manual process. And they're like, yeah, I was like, well, what if, what if that data was already in Salesforce? And they're like, oh my gosh. And, and we actually <laughs> had a Salesforce application. So, you know, I kind of at that point suspected that that might be the case because, you know, I'd heard it enough from potential customers, but it's, especially as a startup, and again, you know, we think about the world a little bit differently. We're doing things a little bit differently than other systems. And so, you know, really asking those questions in a, in a, um, in an open-minded way can, can both advance the product, but also solve the customers better, uh, problem better. Definitely. So let's talk a little bit about retaining users or customers, mm-hmm. uh, and also kind of gauging their their satisfaction with the product. So at Skilljar, um, I, I, what what metrics do you, you guys use to kind of to measure customer satisfaction with the platform? How, you know what what techniques and tactics do you use to help you know make sure that the users re up on their on their subscription or contract? Uh, and along with you know as with any SaaS company, will 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 aim for is reducing the churn, right? Uh, the yeah. number of people who, uh, who decide not to resubscribe to the product. Yes. Oh, gosh. I could talk about this for the rest of the <laughs> session. So I try to keep it succinct. Um, so there's a lot of dialogue in customer success about churn. And a lot of the discussion is around what I call churn busting, which is, yep. you know, there might be churn. So how do you escalate that internally? Do you assign it to an account manager or customer success? Maybe you offer them a discount. Do you contact them 90 days before renewal or 30 days before renewal? Or what's the exact sequence of emails or invitations you might get? And I'm kind of just like all of this is a lagging indicator of how do you put out that fire. The best day to prevent churn is the day you sign the contract. And then the next best day to prevent churn is the next, like the day after you sign the contract. Yeah. Um, and, and I say this because, you know, for sell, sell the customers that are good fit for the product. And I am unafraid, and I tell the sales team, if it's not a good fit, just tell them and, and why, and then they can decide. And so, um, but it doesn't serve us from a, 
it doesn't serve the customer, it doesn't serve us to, um, you know, have a mismatch of expectations about what the product can do. Um, and so that's a little bit of my overall philosophy. Now, now going into some of the of the details around around metrics and how we at, at least at Skilljar manage it. And and as background, we have I think you know pretty close to 100% gross dollar retention and um, and then well over 100% net retention, which is exactly what you want in a SaaS business. You want your customers at least renewing and ideally expanding. So um, you know I don't know how this will play out, but we seem to be doing something a little bit right. So. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we think of customer health, um, and there is a distinction between customer satisfaction and health. So I heard at a conference once that satisfaction doesn't pay the bills because you can have customers who are satisfied and happy, and um, but there's a lot of other factors, at least for us, that go into a buying decision. So, um, so we have an internal health score. It's based on I don't know, it's about six to eight different factors, and some of them are satisfaction related. So um, we do, you know, net promoter score, which is a pretty common um, right. benchmark used. Uh, um, we pull in some product usage data, and we actually internally match that against contract value to understand, you know, what is the dollar value that they're receiving per user. Um, we actually weight executive sponsorship very highly. So in our business, um, because we are enterprise software with a you know mid five to six digit per year price point, um, you know having visibility into the VP or even C level that and aligning with those initiatives is incredibly important. So um, we have lost some customers in the past because we were very engaged at the individual contributor level. So that individual trainers and people creating content. And then there was some misalignment between that level of the organization and, and the you know VP and C-level organization uh, stakeholders. And so because we didn't have visibility into that, um, you know, we weren't able to make those customers successful. And, and so then we have a few other factors like, you know, recency and frequency of engagement with us. And, and so we look at all these different things and, and we also include a more sort of qualitative relationship um, measure that is, you know, really from the from our customer success manager and how they you know, feel things are going. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, our philosophy is just customer success is not about renewals, it's, and it's not about success with using the Skilljar product, it's successful business outcomes of, um, especially for us, we are an enabler, and so not just can our, custom, can our customers deliver training with Skilljar, but is training achieving the goals they wanted within their organization, and so, we're just incredibly adopt, uh, proactive, and we've invested heavily in our implementation, success, and support teams. Um, on the executive side, we do executive briefings, educational webinars, um, and we're actually holding our first customer conference next month, which I'm really excited about too. That's awesome! Congrats on the customer conference. That Thank sounds you. like it'll be a lot of fun. Um, <clears throat> so, one of the things I, I always tell and uh, when I uh, tell people, but also when I talk to other uh, founders who, especially at SaaS businesses, you know, that are B uh, that are B two B businesses, it's all about finding the champion within that company who can kind of really promote the product. Uh, and sometimes you can you can find someone uh, like you were. I think you were kind of alluding to before who at that the company who 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 may be a real really you know good person to kind of um, propel your product through the lower levels. But if like you mentioned the the uh, senior senior execs aren't on board, and there's a misalignment of kind of priorities and 
and things like that um, with you know for within the company um, that, that 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 doesn't help you any right <laughs> so like it's you know making sure you have the right person as your champion at a particular company to kind uh, depending on what your product is obviously that may vary um, it could be it could be you know C level could be VP level could be just you know on a kind of uh, manager level uh, it all yeah. depends on what you're selling and you know uh, to, to the company. Absolutely. And in our case, our, the customers we work with on a day-to-day basis, or the users, I should say, um, a lot of them are, are in the training space, or in, a lot of them are former educators or former trainers or content designers, and so they care very much um, about the educational experience and the quality of the content and whether it's um, landing with their audience. And so there's a lot of uh, you know, in a very sort of wholehearted and, and warm way, a desire from our end users to create the best experiences. Um, and sometimes they're not as attuned to the priorities of the executives to, you know, test and iterate, test and iterate and, you know, put out an MVP so that it, so you can start driving um, user adoption and and um, sometimes training from revenue and all those other business outcomes and so we have caught our, we found ourselves sometimes on the wrong side of that communication misalignment mm-hmm. um, because we're so focused on making our end users successful so you know it's a journey for us like everybody else and trying to to strike a balance and and get better every every day. Nice. So let's take let's take a step uh, back in time again back to your time at Amazon. You were part of a group called the Bar Razor, uh, Bar <laughs> Razors, uh, at Amazon, which is apparently I, I I had just you know looked into this when I heard about this. I had never heard of this group at Amazon before. Explain to me and everyone what what a, what a Bar Razor is at Amazon. Yeah, so a Bar Razor at Amazon is somebody that's required on an interview loop to. Um, on every single interview loop in the company. And it's called a bar raiser because um, that person is meant to make sure that every hiring decision is consistent with the values of the company and also, you know, literally raises the bar in terms of this candidate is better than 50% of the people currently in the role. And uh, the concept, I think, has been around since the very, very early days of Amazon. And in fact, the bar raiser is supposed to be on a different team than the hiring manager and the hiring team as almost a check, like a check and balances of power to avoid hiring managers being really... um, you know, we've all, we've, we're all, all of us always very desperate to fill critical seats. And so the bar raiser, I think, was originally intended to um, just be a, a check on that to make sure we are making decisions that are best for the company um, and best for the role. Right. So, so how, okay, so this was interesting to me. How, how do you measure whether someone's better than 50% of the other people in, the, in, in a similar role? How, how does that get measured? <laughs> um. You can't really. So, but as part of my training to be a bar raiser, one of the facilitation techniques I learned was um, even just being if if a if a candidate's borderline, it honestly should probably be a no hire. Like when in doubt, do not hire is a phrase I use very frequently. So, when a group of people is sort of on the fence about a candidate, you know, just asking the question, well, you know, do we think this person 
is better than 50% of the people currently in the role. Like usually people are like, and that is enough to, <laughs> to, to be like, okay, well, you know, when in doubt, don't hire. So there's no actual measurement of it of, in terms of a, um, from a hiring perspective, you know, it's a, it's a very much, I call a zoo environment. So you're observing these animals at the zoo and not in the jungle. And so you don't know, you know, and is there even a way to measure how, you know, quote unquote good somebody is. But when somebody, when a hiring team thinks about working with this person on a day-to-day basis, and are they going to bring an extra edge and, and make the group better? Um, usually just by asking the question, people reflect and say, Hmm, maybe not. And, and I actually had a flash of insight about this about a year ago, where if you don't hire people that you think are better than 50% of the people there, you're actually lowering the performance of the group, like almost mathematically. Like you're bringing somebody in that's less than average, and if you keep doing that, or if you keep right, allowing right. yourself True. to do that, you're actually, your team performance is actually going down, so. That is true. You can't argue with that logic. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and as humans, we have a tendency to want to give people a chance. It's very hard to reject people, especially if you like them from an interpersonal perspective and you think this could be a chance where they might potentially really blossom. And so I think it's a way to sort of examine that very human impulse to you know, want to um, you know, give people a chance when they might not necessarily be the best thing for the business gotcha so so from what i understand you also as a bar raiser you had the opportunity uh, the the i guess the ability uh to veto people who were you know uh, who were up for being hired uh, mm-hmm. did you ever veto anyone and, and if you can talk about why or why not yeah so never explicitly so i think the actual rule and I should caveat that all of this was <laughs> five years ago, so I don't know how the program may have evolved. But mm-hmm. um, it's Amazon has an interesting philosophy in that you're not looking for consensus walking out of the debrief. Um, usually you end up with consensus, but uh, and really the hiring manager and the bar raiser have to agree. And so if one of those doesn't agree, then you're not going to hire the person. So I never explicitly vetoed anybody over like probably a thousand interviews when I was there. Um, and the bar raiser does have, you know, positional authority in the room. Like everybody knows who the bar raiser is. Um, often it's somebody you don't know and the, um, you know, what that person says, even in the facilitation context, the hiring manager in the room can usually pick up that vibe. So I would say much more frequently I've influenced decisions where, um, perhaps I felt the debrief was going a certain direction that I didn't agree with. And so, um, I always saw my role and, and the training process, you know, also reinforced that my, my role was to lead the group to the best hiring decision, not to, not to make my voice the, the loudest or the most right. Cause usually that's like, I didn't know the needs of the group very deeply. And so, um, and that can be done very much just by asking the right questions. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for example, you know, if if there's a candidate that if there's an engineer that um, you know maybe has great technical skills, but you know has a bit of an edge, and um, there's concerns about teamwork, so you know I usually ask actually whatever the the risk is, you know, assume this is true. Like, what are the consequences if that's the case? How likely is it to be true? And is this risk accept? If it is true, is that acceptable or not? And, um, and, and some risks are okay and, and others are not. And, you know, questions like that really help, I think, a group 
evaluate what um, evaluate the 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 feedback in a way that ultimately leads to you know a good hiring decision. Right. I also think it's partly like you're you're like a fresh pair of eyes on the situation where mm-hmm. you know you're you're not as invested in that particular group, being that it's not your group, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, within the company, so you kind mm-hmm. of can bring a fresh perspective to to the mix and get people to kind of. Uh, either see things or 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 uh, think of things that maybe they didn't they didn't see or think of before. Yes, a common pattern is, and it, it the bar raisers more or less rotate. It's kind of like who is available. So, like the hiring managers on every single loop for all the candidates coming in for a position, but bar raisers sort of float in and out. So a very common thing I used to see was it's a very critical position. The interview loop is you know, depleted because they've maybe interviewed 10 in a row that didn't um, get an offer. And and there's a lot of discussion in the room about, uh, you know, we really need this role and this person was so much better than the other person, but I don't know. And and as an, a little bit of an outsider, you can sort of hear that they don't really love this candidate, but there's a bit of a bias from having just interviewed a string of um, candidates that didn't make the bar, so it's making this most recent one look better. And in those mm-hmm. cases, you know, the role is like, well, you know, like if this were the first person you interviewed, how would they? How would you feel about it? And just kind of highlighting some of those, helping people understand their true sort of um, feelings about a candidate uh, based on the on the interview and the feedback. And and um, and so, and you're totally right. A fresh pair of eyes and perspective can really help and experience because. Um, one of the best things about the bar raiser process was for the first time in my life, I got to shadow other people's interviews and learn from them and have them shadow me and give me feedback. Um, and it is a skill that we put people into without a lot of guidance and um, mentorship. And so you know, the benefit of all those interviews and seeing the patterns of what's actually worked and what hasn't worked and the outcomes of those decisions is is very useful to bring into a room. Absolutely. So I guess the next logical question on my end is, do you guys have a bar racer program at Skilljar? And 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 has <laughs> it and, and and how did it kind of influence your hiring practices? Um, you know, obviously you've hired a lot of people now, uh, having run Skilljar for five years or so. Um, how, how did that whole experience influence what you're doing now with, with hiring? Yeah, so we don't have a bar raiser program, although I'm thinking about it. Um, <laughs> but either my co-founder or I has to be on every single loop. So in the absence of actually creating a program, we do have this sort of natural check and balance where, um, yeah, my co-founder or I has to you know be part of every hiring decision, and uh, it's and and also by the way that the best even the best hiring decisions, and I think I learned this in bar raiser training. Like there's still only I think like 60 to 70% correct. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of error in, in, this, in even the best process out there. So, but I think in terms of how it's influenced our hiring practices, you know, first, you know, I take hiring extremely seriously. I probably spend a third to half of my time on it. And for many, I think first time founders especially, it's a bit of an overlooked competency and and to be fair, like very early on in the company when you're just struggling to get your first customer and your first product at the door, like who cares about you know building a scalable hiring process? Um, but once you get beyond that and you're actually, you know, I think we hired 21 people last quarter, which 
um, you know, over three months, that's, you know, that's more than one per week and of actual accepted offers. So you, 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 you do the math and you go back to on sites and phone screens and projects. And that's a lot of hiring activity. And, and I just really lean into it because I love it, frankly. And, and I know it's important for the company. Um, and in some ways it's very similar to what we were talking about with churn. If you want to pre- prevent churn, you got to sign the right customer. Well, if you want successful employees, you got, you got to bring in the right people and not just friends or family members or people with great resumes that might not be a good fit. Um, from a process perspective, I, we follow actually a very similar process to Amazon. Um, and it's very data driven. We collect feedback. Um, and I do think it helps reduce biases as well. So, you know, our process consists of typically a couple informational screens. Um, something that's different is we do have everybody, every candidate do some kind of small project. And then we do deep dive interviews that are really aligned with both the functional skills of the role and our core values. Um, We also do reference checks. And this process is really common at big companies, but it's sometimes a lot for startups. And sometimes um, we have candidates say, coming in like, wow, I've never done four hours of on-site interviews before. and which was the totally normal process at Amazon. So I feel very strongly though that that effort upfront is well spent. Um, and then the last part is my experience of, of shadowing others and having them shadow me in the Bar Ridger program I found was one of the most valuable things that I've had in my entire career. And so um, we pair on a lot of interviews for the same reason. And although we don't have a formal you know, feedback and training process around it that's very well built out just having you know people absorb um side by side um and i invite anybody in the company to join any of my interviews as well um is just a way to kind of you know train others in an informal way yeah i mean that makes sense and i think like you said oftentimes early on it can be overlooked but hiring is a serious part of business uh Mm -hmm. making sure you get the right people on board uh, not you know can make or break a company. Um, so one of the other things I know that you're really passionate about and and, and, and big on is transparency in the workplace. And I'm, I'd love to hear kind of you know what practices you put in place to ensure transparency at Skilljar and um, and any recommendations in terms of implementing those types of practices. Yeah, you know, information sharing. I guess also, sorry, I also should just say, what does transparency in the workplace mean to you is also another, I guess, important way to kind of start this off. Yeah, so transparency for me is, you know, there's push and then there's pull. So push transparency, and I'll get to some of our tactics are, you know, what do we proactively share? And Pull, pull is what would we share if somebody asked us? And I, I pretty much set the tone from day one of any employees. We're transparent about everything, you know, except for some areas related to HR, you know, compensation and corporate, you know, governance, of course. And so, um, so, and I care a lot about this because I've realized that information is actually my, um, you know, interpersonal currency. And by that, I mean, like, access to information and information sharing is, you know, critical to my ability to work with someone. And, um, when I have full access to information, then like I need that to feel, um, in a place of, you know, competency and an ability to function. And, and, and conversely, when there's information that's being with, 
held either intentionally or not, I get really squirrely. So, I mean, some of this is just um, personality and some of it's training through Amazon, which is incredibly transparent with metrics and data. So, um, and I've also found, especially as a company grows, that, you know, information sharing and documentation is awesome for organizational learning and resilience so that, um, you know, when somebody new walks into a role, like, how for those of us um, like myself that are more um, visual learners, you know, how do we get up to speed as quickly as possible on topics without just you know talking to every person in the company? How does the how does the company have an institutional memory? And it's usually through documented information. Um, and and also as context, like I'm the kind of person that reads like two books a week, and um, and I'm just very into I guess writing, which. Again, I don't know how much is is uh, is just myself versus what the the written style at Amazon, where every single thing was documented. So, either way, I just have a um, bias towards that. So, so then some of the things that we actually do at Skilljar, um, and this is constantly evolving. Um, so, we have a monthly all hands, and we share the details of the business. So everything from our progress against plan to our cash balance. And then each of the sort of functional team leaders does a highlights, lowlights, I'm coming. Um, we have an anonymous Q and A as part of that for pre-submitted questions. And we used to do this as, um, it was just like real time of like, Hey, questions. And, um, but I, I found after a certain point, it was actually towards the beginning of this company that, you know, people weren't asking questions, especially new people. So then we added in this, um, anonymous pre-submitted Q&A so that, you know, people that might not feel comfortable in a group setting asking questions would still be able to have their questions answered. And I answer everyone. Like, actually, we have our all hands on Wednesday, and there's a couple difficult questions, and I'm going to answer them because, you know, I believe in, in information sharing, good or bad. Um, and then we also have a daily metrics email that goes um, – that goes to the company. So one day, um, maybe in the next year, I would love to get to a place where we are doing written documents, Amazon style for, for things, but, um, we're not there yet. And the overhead it would take to, you know, train and require that type of review is not something that I feel is a priority right now. No, look, I think, I think transparency is important, especially when, um, especially when you're when you're building a company from the ground up you know and, and and even even when it's small when you're just a couple people you know i think transparency is is key to being making sure everyone's on the same page mm-hmm. um and and also making sure that everyone understands you know what you're working for you know what mm-hmm. you're working towards yeah uh, and i'm so. big on um making sure to the extent possible that like we are going to make so many mistakes, so let's surface them and problem solve, and then make better mistakes. And there isn't there is an edge to this because um, in Amazon, a lot of the transparency had a negative undertone, which is you know people would then call you out for things that were out of your control, and then you have to go and explain things. And there's even a process called COE, which is correction of error, which you would go into you know a five wise process and. Um, and, and the, the edge in transparency at Amazon was a little bit fear-based, I would say, in my experience. And so at Skilljar, you know, Jason and my co-founder and I have really tried to make that more of a, hey, let's uncover problems. Because I have this huge fear that, um, you know, as we scale, you know, people are aware of problems and don't do anything. And I need 
the organization to you know share information and share both highlights and lowlights and how do we grow from that. So we actually have a similar COE process. We call it celebration of error. And we really <laughs> try to do it in terms of, okay, great, like we made this mistake, thank goodness we made it now and not two years from now. Like how do we um, how do we improve and then what are the process steps we can take to try to not make this mistake again? No, definitely. I I, I like the I like the the sea change right there. That's, that's, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I have one I have one last question before we get to the lightning round. Um, so this 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 one I I'm curious to hear what you would say to this. So what advice would you you know would you give a younger person um, today that you wish you knew when you were getting started in, in technology? Hmm. So, you know, I was incredibly lucky at Amazon to be, I had two different jobs there. And in both places, I was lucky enough to be surrounded with just really smart people with very high integrity um, that I felt shared a lot of my values. And I learned a lot from them, um, of course, from a skills perspective, but I also learned a lot from them from a just a human and leadership perspective and in fact I think many of my former you know directors and VPs are actually angel investors in Skilljar and I honestly got really lucky and um, I see so many young people going into tech and going to tech startups now where um, they do that almost in spite of of what they you know, feel about the people they're working with or the or the leadership and I I think my advice is really be to you know earlier in your career surround yourself with those amazing people I think um, uh, the founder of Dropbox said something like you're the average of the five people you spend the most time with and I think that's really true and we spend the most time with people at work and um, and I think it can really influence the course of your life I think that's good advice. I mean, considering how much time a lot of, especially in the startup world, how much time you spend mm-hmm. at work doing, you know, hopefully something that you really enjoy doing. You're with those people all the time. So as long if you can make sure that, that, the, that the people around you are of high quality, high caliber people that you look up to and that you respect, um, that, that, that makes it all the better. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, Sandy Lentz, time for the lightning round, which of course is supported by Wix. You can create a professional website today at wix.com. That's wix.com. So Sandy, whenever you're ready, you let me know and we'll get started. I'm, I'm <laughs> nervous, but I'm ready. All right, here we go. Name one thing that you are really, really good at. Sleeping. <laughs> My wife would agree with you on that in terms of things she's good at too. <laughs> Bedroom, office, desk. I'm sorry. Bedroom, office, desk, or car. Which one do you clean first? Bedroom. Where do you see yourself in the next 10 years? I have a feeling I know the answer to this one. Seattle? Being CEO of <laughs> Yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much what I, what I thought you would say. <laughs> All right. What is your preferred social network for, uh, for personal use? Instagram. That's a that's a lot of uh, a lot of people's currently. I think I think they've really hit something there uh, that that just people love Instagram photos and you know I I was reading about the, about how much how much time they spent developing those filters. They literally hand coded them themselves. Like oh, that's awesome. <laughs> Major props to, uh, to to Kevin Systrom and, and Mike. 
Um, last, last one, last one for you. This one, I this one should this one should be fun. I think. Current number of unanswered emails in your inbox. Zero. Oh my god! Um, you hit inbox zero. I think there's <laughs> maybe you know fifteen since we started uh, talking, but other than that, zero. I'm very inbox zero oriented. Wow. What what uh what what techniques and stuff do you use to to inbox zero? Do you just like you just reply as soon as it comes in? I know a lot of people, including uh, myself, I, at least I try, is to reply pretty much as fast as possible, <laughs> so it doesn't get. So this doesn't um, build up. That's what I have been doing, but I've been really, I'm actually very much reevaluating this right now. And I don't have like a master technique. Like I know there's an inbox zero thing where you're supposed to set up folders of like do later and re- need to respond. I've never done that. I've just like real time processed. But mm-hmm. with the volume of noise coming at me now, um, it's not working. And one of my former directors at Amazon would only look at email twice a day. And it's like, how does he even do that? But so I'm actually active, very actively reevaluating it. Like literally today, I just, I used to get all the catch-all, and, until one hour ago, I used to get <laughs> all, of, all of the catch-all email to anything at skilljar.com, and I literally just changed that. That was the last thing I did before we started talking, was I just changed it to go to um, you know, our, our operations person instead of me. And uh, I'm sure that'll reduce the amount of emails by, uh, I'd imagine, quite a bit. <laughs> yes. And then also, I also just came from a four day um, uh, uh, workshop where I was almost completely off the grid. So as part of that, I, or, I like literally just cleaned out the first thing this morning of like, mm-hmm. you know, 500 unanswered emails. So that's why I, was, <laughs> I can very confidently say zero. <laughs> Nice. Well, if if you if you want an invite to Superhuman, which is an email client that I've been using, created by the guy uh, one of the co- uh, one of the guys who created uh, Reportive, which was obviously acquired by LinkedIn, mm-hmm. um, it is it is incredible how much faster I am at my inbox now because they they've built a bunch of tools and everything is like key key uh, keyboard shortcuts that they and they and they literally when they onboard you, I'm not sure how they're going to scale this. But they literally uh, like Skype with you, and the, and and they tell you, and they, they teach you all about the the uh, the program and like how to use it effectively and efficiently. Um, mm. And it's it's really made a huge uh, help for me. So if you want to invite, happy to send you a referral. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I guess you could say that. <laughs> yeah, I would love an invite. Invite, and I always struggle with um, in an operations setting. First in, first out is always the most. Not always, but on principle it's the most efficient thing so that's why i've never adopted these folders and things but it's not working for me anymore so i need to figure out a better solution i'll send you a referral after this i'll send you it's been it's been great speaking with you if anyone if if you if anyone wants to get in touch with you what's the best way for them to do that um email sandy with an i s-a-n-d-i at skilljar.com and now you have to spell it right because if you don't it's going to go to our ops person not me Uh oh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you'd be like where did this email come from and they're not going to forward it because they because they because they know that you spelled it exactly. right <laughs> awesome well sandy it's been it's been wonderful having you on i appreciate it and i hope you have a great rest of your day thanks jeff thanks for listening to techie bites stay tuned for more episodes every tuesday with awesome interviews and conversations about technology and business if you like what we're doing please consider supporting the podcast at anchor.fm slash best techie. 
and or by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Both ways help us greatly and are much appreciated. So thank you. Until next time, we'll see you. And remember, remember, take care of your computers.